Father God, we, we thank you and we praise you that our sin debt is paid for. That's why we're here this morning, Lord. We're here to worship, to celebrate the fact that your son, Jesus Christ, bought us with his blood. And that's worthy of singing praise. So God, today, as we worship you, I just pray that you'd be pleased and that you would be here in this place with us and that we would feel your presence, but we would know that you love us. Let this time be for you, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 God bless you. Well, this morning, if you will turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, we will continue in our exposition of this wonderful gospel. It's just a wonderful thing to stop and just look at the words of Jesus and to understand what it is that he has for us as his children So if you're able to stand, let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 7. These are the words of our Savior. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Amen? Dear Father God, we praise you at this hour of listening to your word. These words of your Son, Jesus Christ, 
remind us that when we are part of your family, when we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we have the right and the opportunity and the privilege to come to you with our petitions. And dear God, as a loving father, you grant what we need. Lord, that is a special place. And so God, I pray this morning as we listen to your word, that you would bring us into your fold, that you would love us and remind us that you care for us in everything we need. And that's a special thing. Let this time be for your glory. Please search our hearts. Speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please have a seat. One important thing to remember, I think, when we're going through Matthew's gospel is we have to remember the the overarching theme of, especially where we are now, chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the Sermon on the Mount has this theme of the kingdom of heaven. But the overarching theme of Matthew is not only the kingdom, but this idea that when we are a part of the kingdom, we're part of something bigger. We're part of a family. Can you all agree with that? Can you you relate to that? When, When we're part of the church, when we are part of God's kingdom, we're not alone. We're part of family, and there's nothing better than family. Amen? Jesus here, he's teaching us in this Sermon on the Mount that there's a special kingdom, a, a kingdom that calls us to a special entrance, to be special people who are called to be part of a special family. If you get nothing else out of our time together in Matthew's gospel, I hope that you understand that. That when God calls us to be his people, that's a special thing. It's not something to be trivialized. It's not something to be discarded. It's not something to just ignore. It is something important. It is something special. It is something holy. So it's interesting that when we come to this section, uh, verses 7 through 11 of chapter 7, that our minds might shift toward a self-serving mindset. This passage, verses 7 through 11, has clearly been taken out of context in many of our modern-day charismatic Word of Faith movement sermons. Look, Jesus says, if you just ask, God will give you whatever you ask for. It doesn't say whatever you ask for. It says that He will provide for you when you ask. Big difference. And so when we come to this passage, we may be tempted to think of our self-serving interests. And then one begins to ponder what God might be willing to give us. Boy, if I just ask, maybe, maybe I'll get it. But consider this fact, that if we're honest with ourselves, to ask anyone for help or to ask anyone for a gift can honestly be a, a difficult thing. We hesitate, don't we? I don't know about you, but I'm a very independent man. I don't like to ask for help. That's one of the faults of the male species. We can get this done. Um, and I, I was talking to my sister uh, last week. I forget what we were talking about, but it came up with uh, that, that we all carry the Keith Owens DNA. Now, Keith Owens is my father. The Keith Owens DNA is you don't pay anybody to do anything. You figure it out and you fix it. And that's where, it, that's where I get it. I'm not going to ask for help. I want to figure, I love YouTube, right? All the men in this room, can you say a hearty amen? Amen. Amen. If we can't figure it out, somebody has done it and they've done a video on it. And then we take the credit. We've done it. We don't want to ask for help. 
And so when we come to this passage of Scripture, ask that it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. Some of us may, if we're honest with ourselves, say we are too prideful to ask for help. Or we may look at this text and we may see this as permission to be entitled, that perhaps as God's children we're entitled whatever it is that we ask for. Both ideas here are missing the point. And this is what I want us to see here. When we approach another person for a favor, or even if we approach a person and ask for a gift for help in some way, our thoughts often center on how this request will benefit us. And I don't want us to miss the point here. Jesus is not teaching us in this text that we have benefits. Even though we do, that's not the point. Let's see what we have to say here. The point that Jesus is making here in Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11, is that those who are a part of this special citizenship called the kingdom of heaven, we're part of a family. We're a special kingdom family. And we don't need to forget that idea. We don't need to actually be embarrassed by that truth. We who are part of God's kingdom, those of us who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, who are part of the church, we are part of something special. Let's not forget that. Amen? So does this point not change our thinking when we, when we come to the point of needing to ask others for help? If who we seek help from is family, doesn't that change our perspective a bit? Isn't it a little bit easier to come to family and ask for something than it is to just ask in general? I hope so. After all, family is family. We do trust one another. We trust our family no matter the strain. Families that are close, I think, will always depend upon one another in some form or fashion. But even if families are strained and they don't talk to each other at all, here's what I have seen. They do rally together during difficult times. They may not see each other much during the year. They may not talk to each other uh, apart from, hey, how you doing? But boy, when, when, it's, when there's trouble, the family rallies. That's a beautiful thing. So after all, family is family. And no other bond can be stronger than family. And so I think that's what Jesus is trying to get us to see here. So let's read verse 7 again. Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. And then further, the next verse, verse 8. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. In verse 8, we see that this idea continues, but shows us the outcome of the actions of requesting and seeking and knocking. When one asks someone that you trust, whether it be a family or a friend, the act results in a positive outcome. That's what we see in verse 8. If you ask, a gift will come. When you seek answers, answers will be found. When you knock on the door, family will answer it and let you in. Wow, what a promise. We've got two grown sons, and we've always let them know you can always come home whenever you need to. The door's always open. That's family. That is special. But let us pause and let's think here today. And I think especially in this narcissistic climate that we live in. You know what narcissism is? Everybody got their phones out? 
What, what does the cell phone show us about ourselves more than anything? We are narcissistic because our noses are in this screen more than in this book. Or it's more than looking toward one another. We are in a narcissistic age. We focus on ourselves. We think about ourselves. And so in this climate, I think it's important for us to pause here and think for a minute what it is Jesus is trying to teach us. He's trying to teach us that what precedes the act of asking or seeking or knocking is not what we must have for ourselves. I think Jesus is not commanding his people to approach the throne of heaven with narcissistic tendencies. He's asking us, he's commanding us, he's encouraging us that if, if you love the Lord and the Lord loves you and you are part of his kingdom, we have nothing to fear. We are, we are welcome to come to the throne of heaven and we can ask and we can seek help and we can knock on the door and we are welcomed in. That's what Jesus is teaching us here. If we're intellectually honest with ourselves in this passage, we have to admit that the common theme of sacrifice still carries through this text. We may have to sacrifice our pride in order to be willing to come to the Father and ask or to seek His help or to seek answers for questions. To knock on the door is the final step of boldness, isn't it? If I knock on the door, who's going to answer If I knock on the door, then that's the last step. Now that shows people I'm here and I need something. What are you going to do when they open the door? Turn around and say, oh, I forgot I made a mistake and just leave? That's the final step of commitment. There seems to be here in verses 7 through 11, there's two implied themes in this passage I want us to look at, both of which relate to one another. But there is also a particular order, a structure that these themes are. The first one, We see here that to ask and seek and find is to obtain the grace of Christ for our spiritual needs. This passage is about what we need. And Jesus here, I think, clearly makes the point. There is a spiritual need within all of us, all of you. Come to the throne of heaven and you'll find the answers. Come to the throne of heaven and you will receive what needs to be done but the second theme here is obtaining our daily material needs. Would you all agree that we have, we have material needs every day? First thing in the morning for most people is just a good cup of coffee or two or three or six or ten. Dear Lord, give me my coffee. Other people just give me, just give me a bed to live. Whatever it is, clothing, food, whatever. There are physical needs every single day. We can all agree with this. But first, let's establish that God does provide daily needs for all living creatures. When we look at this text, it may seem like only God provides for for his special people. But there is this idea of common grace that we looked at in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, where it's very clear that God, through his common grace, allows all good things to be given to all of his creation because they need it. Matthew 5, 45 says, For he, being God, makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So even those who are not part of the kingdom, who are not part of the family, they are under common grace and God allows them all that they need to live, whether they realize it or not. 
all human beings, all of creation is granted the grace of life and all that is needed for that because God is good even to those who do not love him. The fact that we are breathing, that the sun rises and sets, that we have life every day, whether we are part of the kingdom of heaven or not, is part of God's common grace. We cannot forget that. Yet Jesus in this passage, I think, makes it very clear, not just here, but also throughout all of his sermon, and and, and also we see this in the Gospels. Everywhere we read in the four Gospels, there's this common theme Jesus makes clear that there is a special status for the citizens of the kingdom. Flip over to, we're still in chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7. Look over on verses 21 through 23. This will be a sermon coming up. I don't want to unpack this too deep today, but Matthew 7 verses 21 through 23 helps us see that there is a special status for God's people. Jesus says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works on in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So there is a theme, even in the Gospels, of clear distinction of those who are part of the kingdom and those who are not. Yet God, through his grace, still allows all of us to get and possess the material needs we have. So then in Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11, let's put it back there. Jesus is teaching a clear message that when one who asks receives, but what exactly do we receive? And more importantly, what more exact what exactly do we ask for? Just because I ask God for a million dollar trust fund does not mean by this text that I'm going to get that. Notice that Jesus specifies here in verses 9 through 10 something very important. It's a very common theme. Look here at verses 9 through 10. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? What do we see here in verses 9 through 10? We see two things. We see a theme of physical hunger. We also see a theme of family. Which one of you, if his son, your offspring, your child, there's not a parent that I know who is worthy of being called a parent who, if a child asks for something to eat, will deny them what they need. Amen. Notice how I clarified that. A parent worthy of being called a parent, a father or a mother, despite what our congressional laws now say. You realize that in, in Congress it is now forbidden to use gender language like father and mother. It is legal now, as of like last week. It is true. You can find the congressional record. In the halls of Congress in the United States of America, you can no longer specify father and mother, son and daughter, mother-in-law, father-in-law, and the list. Go- and they have a list of words that are now forbidden in the halls of Congress. That's a sidetrack, I'm sorry. Because what makes a parent, a father, a mother specifically qualified for that title of father and mother is that they have a daughter or a son who asks for what they need and they know they can trust the source of their petition. Mommy, I'm hungry. Can I get something to eat? 
Yes, darling, here you go. May not be a donut, may be a piece of fruit, but it's, they, they answer the request. The specific examples that Jesus gives here are important. He's not mincing words. He's making a very clear point. There are physical needs to be alive. He purposefully gives examples of food that everyone needs. There's not a single person who would hear this passage and hear this teaching and not relate to the reality that hunger is real. But more specifically, I think Jesus is also illustrating here that a son is not a casual thought. A daughter is not a casual thought. A child is not a casual thought. These are illustrations also of spiritual needs that we have as children of God toward our Heavenly Father as well. He's, he's, he's connecting our physical needs to the greater spiritual reality that we all exist in. He's teaching us very, very clearly. You have a Father in Heaven who loves you, and if you come to Him and you ask Him for what you need, He will love you and He will respond to you and give you what you need not just physically, but more importantly, and I think primarily, your spiritual need for salvation is also part of this request of asking and seeking and knocking. How do we know this? What does Satan tempt Jesus with during his time in the wilderness? And what did Jesus follow with? This is after his baptism by John in the Jordan. If you flip just a page over in Matthew chapter 4, verse 3, we read, And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Wasn't Jesus himself tempted with his hunger? By the tempter, Satan himself. Notice that in this encounter with Satan, he, he comes to Jesus and Jesus points out the temptations of the flesh. But he responds back to the tempter with the greater spiritual truths of the kingdom of heaven. Here's what Jesus responds to Satan about in Matthew 4.4. 4. But he, Jesus, answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus always connects our physical reality and our physical needs to the spiritual reality and our spiritual needs, even here in Matthew 7. Now, what Jesus quotes here in Matthew 4, 4, when he responds to Satan, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, is actually citing Deuteronomy chapter 8, 3, when God permits his people to go hungry in order to teach them that every word from God is what brings them greater life, more life than bread. If you remember that, that narrative in Deuteronomy chapter 8, that's where God allows the children of Israel to go hungry for a little while and so that they will come to him and ask for bread. And he brings manna, provides for their needs. There's something about hunger that drives us to satisfy that hunger, whether that's physical hunger whether that spiritual hunger, God permits all of these things to cause us to turn to Him for our needs. Amen? What an amazing thing. God is so good. And so the specific request that Jesus refers to here in Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11, these are the needs first of the Spirit and secondly, the needs of the flesh. 
But without the needs of the Spirit being fulfilled, then the needs of the flesh are going to suffer. Just as the Spirit suffers apart from God, the Father, the Creator of all. When our spirit is isolated from our Creator through sin, or we suffer, and we hunger, and we're drawn. And Jesus is showing us here, just as your stomach is empty, so is your soul. If you'll just come and you ask, if you come and you seek, if you come and you knock on the door of heaven, it will be open to you if your request is sincere and truly seeking answers. Now, even further here in Matthew 7, in this passage, there's a greater, more essential truth of the gospel. I think what we're going to see here in verses 7 through 11 is also the truth of the Christian faith. Because within the rule and reign of, of this heavenly kingdom that we're a part of, at the very center of this is a relationship of a father to his children. You notice in chapters 5, 6, and 7, there seems to be this relationship theme between a father, a heavenly father, and his children, the citizens of the kingdom. And that's, that's very important. There's some ramifications here to that relationship. The two greatest elements of the Christian faith is that of a loving relationship as it first occurs between the Father in heaven and His redeemed children. So you've got this vertical relationship through love that is established first. And then you've got this second relationship horizontally between siblings of the church, the brothers and sisters of the faith. Isn't that amazing? And so the two greatest truths of Christianity is first that God is our Father and that we as His children are the Christians who are all our brothers and sisters and this is the essential truth of Christianity. That's why we're here this morning. Amen? That's why we're here. How many of us came to Sovereign Grace this morning looking for family? Anybody? Nobody? I'm the only one looking for family. We're going to try this again. How many of you here this morning came to Sovereign Grace Baptist Church looking for family? There we go. That's the good Sunday answer. Amen. We don't come to church just to sit in the pew and listen to Pastor Bryant just wax on and on and on, droning and droning and droning. We come to sing praises to our Father in heaven together. We come into this space to fellowship with one another, to build loving connections with one another because we have one thing in common and is that we are all sinners saved by the grace of God. Amen? That's what brings us here. Now let's look a little bit close, more closely at the meaning here of the love that we're talking about as it relates directly to this overall theme of the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, the overall theme of the Sermon on the Mount is that there is this heavenly kingdom, and a certain people will become citizens within that kingdom. That is what is repeated often in chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew's Gospel. There is a kingdom, and there are certain people who will become citizens within that kingdom, and here's what their benefits are, here's what they look like, and here's how you enter into the kingdom. Number one, the Holy Spirit is the bond by which we're united through Christ. So long as we're without Christ and we're separated from Him, nothing which He suffered and died for is of the least benefit to us at all. Let's make that abundantly clear. There is no such thing 
as universal salvation for all human beings, period. Christ died on the cross for all, but not everyone will benefit from that sacrifice. Let's make that abundantly clear. The only thing that connects us to Christ is our surrender and our belief that that has satisfied the debt that we owe God through our sin. And it is the Holy Spirit that then comes into our lives and fills us. God's presence himself manifests and dwells within us through Christ. That's what changes us. So to manifest to us the blessings which Christ received from the Father, Christ must become ours, and Christ must dwell within us and with us. Notice that. Christ must become ours, and he must dwell with us. Well, apart from that, we're not part of the kingdom. Apart from that, our requests and our petitions to the Father are actually not heard because he's not our Father. The first and only petition of prayer that God the Father hears from any of us is that of, dear Father, forgive me. That's the first one that he responds to, apart from common grace. But the very first and most important prayer that God hears is that of repentance and that of sorrow, and dear God, forgive me. That is the first step in the beginning and actually the sealing of the deal (laughs) of coming into the kingdom of heaven. Amen? Because once God grants forgiveness to us through the blood of his son, we are his children. We are citizens of the kingdom. So the primary status before asking God to fulfill our needs, right? And Jesus is making it clear here. He does say, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it will be opened to you. The first and primary step in this is that our needs must be made known. And the first need that we have is that Christ must dwell within us and that we receive Christ and make him our own, that he becomes ours. That is the first and primary step to give us the status of children of God. Now turn over to Ephesians 3. Let's see, Ephesians 3 is going to help us see this. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. Ephesians chapter 3. Look here at verses 14 through 19. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit, where? In your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You see that? You see several things or there's several things that we just mentioned that are highlighted in this text. Verse 14 shows us the first act of humility in prayer. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. So when we come and we ask, there has to be genuine humility. Bowing of the knee before the Father. Genuine humility from whom every, verse 15, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named. Now, verse 16 helps us see very clearly that 
as we, as we obtain this response from the Father, that he's the one who grants us the strength through, with power through his spirit that is in us, in your inner being. God meets each and every sinner right where they are, but he meets them within their inner self, the very true nature of who they are. Notice this. There is an inner self that we all possess that no one else truly knows. And boy, I hope no one ever finds out my true inner being. Amen? Can y'all say amen to that? I hope no one finds out the true inner self of who I am. Boy, will they be shocked. That's the most intimate and most private part of who we are, and it's a real, it's a reality of who we are. And that is where God the Father meets us. His Spirit, which is His very presence, meets us in our inner being and shows us the truth of who we are and the truth of our needs. First and foremost is, dear God, I'm a sinner. And God will reveal that to us in ways that we may deny, but we cannot deny his truth, and he will show it to us in a way that is true, and boy, does it wake us up. And that is, it, that is how, in verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And when that occurs, verse 19, that's where all the fullness of God is. Jesus himself is the whole fullness of God. That's what we see in Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. For in him, Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and then Christ fills the hearts of the true Christian. That's what makes us part of the family. Then we have the ear of the Father, and he has, and he listens to us. He hears the cries of his children because that's where he dwells, through his son. We can see a deeper meaning here to the citizenship of the kingdom of heaven. This citizenship is not something granted to anyone who merely asks for it. There has to be a genuine humility, a genuine heart change, a genuine and truthful realization that I am a sinner, a child who needs a father's love and forgiveness. Not an arrogant, entitled, dear God, you owe me. Notice that. How does this occur? How does one's inner being become a suitable dwelling place for the fullness of God that Colossians chapter 2 tells us is Christ? Christ is the fullness of God bodily. We have to bring our requests by a genuinely repentant heart. For one's petitions to be heard by God, God must dwell in the hearts of the one asking. Christ is the fullness of God, and the Holy Spirit is the fullness of God's presence. That's the best definition of the Holy Spirit. That is God's presence, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is part of every genuine believer. A genuine humility that results from a genuine repentance must occur in order for the heart to be a suitable residence for Christ. If you look at Joel chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, here's what we see. 
Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. A heart of repentance rends or rips the heart for God to see it and to expose it. Return to the Lord in Joel chapter 2, verse 13. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. So we see that the genuine repentant heart is the truthful approach to the throne of grace. This is what Jesus is telling us in Matthew chapter 7. When you come and you ask and you seek and you knock, it must be an act of genuine humility and genuine desire and genuine need. The heart that is deceiving, on the other hand, is the heart that God does not hear because he knows the truth of our soul, our, our very being. God knows the perfect gift to give to those who ask. Notice back here in Matthew chapter 7. Look here at verse 11. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Now, I've given my kids some good things over the years. I still give them good things, I think, from time to time. I've probably also given them some things that were not so good, but it was for their own good. I'm not a perfect dad. But, right, you see how Jesus makes the point here in verse 11? Those of us who are evil, we know how to give good gifts to our kids. Every good father, every good mother, no matter how imperfect they are, knows how to give good things to their kids. How much more is the perfect heavenly father giving us even something more perfect and more satisfying and, 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 and fulfilling for our souls than, than our Father God in heaven? This final verse, verse 11, teaches us something. It's the image of family. Notice here in verse 11, we see the image of family. A father to his children is the point here. The gift of salvation awaits all who ask, all who seek, and all who knock. But in order to ask, one must be aware of the sin in their heart. In order to know the sin, one must be convicted. One must be made aware. In order to ask for forgiveness, there must be a seeking out for that forgiveness. In order to ask, one must seek the proper door to knock on in order to ask for the help. You just don't get help for your spiritual status just anywhere. You have to know which door to knock on. So the proper order here for seeking and finding forgiveness is important. And we looked at this a little bit on Wednesday night. Proverbs chapter 9, verses 32 through 36. If you'll flip over there quickly. Proverbs chapter 9. Verses 32 through 36. We'll be closing out with these. Proverbs chapter 9. Those of us, those of you who were here Wednesday night, we had a good Bible study in this text, didn't we? Let's read verses 32 through 36. I'm sorry, I gave you the wrong passage. Proverbs, Proverbs 8. Thank you. My notes were wrong. Say, I'm not perfect either. Not the perfect pastor. Sorry about that. I gave you, I misguided you. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 32. And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. 
Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. Verse 35, for whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. Notice the the connection here in Proverbs talking about wisdom as it relates to what Jesus is teaching in Matthew chapter 7 of asking, seeking, and knocking. You see the connection here? Verse 32 shows us that sons, and we're going to include daughters here, are those who keep the Lord's ways. That's the first point. The ones who listen to godly wisdom are the ones who know to watch and to wait, and they know where to watch and to wait, and that's by the doorway and the gate of the Father. We see that in verse 34. And then in verses 35 and 36, those who are considered sons are the ones who are waiting and watching by the gate. They're the ones who find him. Notice in verse 34, when the Lord is found, the result is what? Both life and favor from the Lord. Amazing. That's a wonderful place to be. But what is also key here is that God calls us to seek and to find him, to wait and to watch for him. And and the implication here in verses 34 and 35 is that, isn't it wonderful if the Lord finds you there waiting for him and watching for him? Wow. Notice in verse 35 what occurs, though, in the negative. Here's what happens when we fail. Those who fail to find the Lord, who do not watch and wait by the gate, are those who fail to find life. Know some folks who are struggling? They're failing to watch and to wait and to seek and to find. The result of failure to obey God's word in verse 32 and to seek and to find God's forgiveness and favor results in injury, self-harm. Those who are in desperate situations, who are not found by the Father, are those who have brought harm to themselves according to Proverbs 8, 35 and 36. So what Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 7, ask seek and find. He's calling us to come to the gate, to come and knock on the door, to ask for forgiveness and mercy, but also to ask for our needs. And the Father who finds us there welcomes us home. Wow. Isn't that amazing? I want to close with one last passage from the Apostle John. If you want to turn over, you can. It's In 1 John chapter 5, verses 9 through 12, this helps us also understand more clearly what Jesus is teaching in Matthew 7. Here's what John's epistle says. 1 John chapter 5, verses 9 through 12. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself, within the inner being. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life 
and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. How do we, how do we possess the Son? How do we have the Son? First of all, we can't control God and we cannot control his Son, but we can make Christ ours because he has first made us his. Isn't that amazing? If God welcomes you home, do you possess that? Or do you just kind of lay around lethargic? Okay, God, thank you, appreciate it. Right? I mean, do we have any ungrateful children? You welcome the children home for Thanksgiving or for Christmas, and they don't even show any gratitude for the bed or the, for the food? You would think that that time of family, would they would possess that and grab that and make it part of them. That's what That would be the ideal scenario for family, wouldn't it? Same thing with our Christian life. When we embrace Christ because he has bought us first and we make him part of us and we, we, we possess that salvation that he grants us, all that makes us part of the family. That's amazing. And so what is it that you wish to ask God for today? If you're part of the family, If you're part of God's family, what is it that you wish to ask God for today? It's not something petty. It's not something uh, insignificant. It's not something necessarily material. What is it that you're asking God for? What are you seeking? If your petition is of anything other than the eternal security and life available through His Son, Jesus Christ, then the scriptures make it clear our petitions are of no worth. It is the first, but it is first by the redemption of Christ that we become his children. And also we become citizens of his kingdom. God provides for his children, he provides for his family. Are you part of his family? You have physical needs right now that you're saying, dear God, I need help. God's not going to let his children suffer unnecessarily. Now, God may allow his children to suffer the consequences of their decisions, and that does happen. But God will also show grace and mercy if we are humble and repentant. (laughs) And here, let me help you get out of this mess. Are we bold enough to come to the throne of heaven and ask, Are we even seeking? Are we even knocking on the door? Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness. We praise you for the truth of your word, that you did not abandon us. You came and chased us, and you sent your Son to redeem us. And your very holy presence is the result of that redemption. And we're part of your family. And we're part of your kingdom. And so, God, I pray at this moment, you would just hear our hearts as we close this time of worship. We sing praises, but I also, Father, I pray that you would hear our song of prayer. Those of us in this room, all who are hearing this word, all of us have needs. We have spiritual needs, we have physical needs. And dear God, we we depend upon you. And when we fail to depend upon you, 
Lord, I thank you that as a loving Father, you teach us to always depend on you. And so, God, at this moment, I pray that you'd fill this room with your love and your presence. And that you would cause us to be confident that we can come to you for whatever we need. Lord, change our hearts. Always show us your affection and your approval that we we please you. And when we don't, show us where we don't. And cause us, Father, to always depend on you. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.